0: Well, the year was 2003. 2003 was actually the 300th anniversary of the birth of Jonathan Edwards. And my good friend, Wayne Pickens, and I uh, boarded a plane in Boise, Idaho, and we made our way to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, for four days of preaching that would com- commemorate the life, the legacy, the theology, and the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. Somewhere along the way, as we made our way to Minneapolis, we were about thirty thousand feet. The guy next to me uh, struck up a conversation. He said, uh, "Where are you headed? So, I'm going to Minneapolis? What are you doing in Minneapolis?" I said, "We're going to a birthday party." I don't know why I said it that way, but it just came out. He said, really? Whose birthday is it? I said, oh, it's a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. You've probably never heard of him. He said, really? How old is he? I said, 300. <laughs> and uh, I have I have grown... Very used to the response of people who wonder why I would have such a fascination with a man who, is, who would now be over 300 years of age. I am actually asked on a fairly regular basis, um, why has Jonathan Edwards influenced you so much? And I could take the remainder of the sermon, I promise I won't, but I could by offering many, many reasons why Jonathan Edwards has had such a profound influence on my life. I will put it this way in one sentence, more than any other man outside of sacred scripture that I have ever read, Jonathan Edwards is the one who is fixated more than anyone else on the glory of God. When Jonathan Edwards was 19 years of age, he wrote a series of resolutions... And I want to challenge you if you have never read those resolutions to run home later this afternoon and do a Google search and type Jonathan Edwards resolutions and take about a half an hour and meditate on these resolutions. I want to just give you two of these resolutions. The very first resolution from the pen of this newly converted young man is written as follows. Resolved. That I will do whatever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good, profit, and pleasure. Resolution number four Edward says, resolve never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God. There's another resolution that is not on the screen this morning, but it goes something like this, resolved never to do anything that I should be ashamed to do if it were the last hour of my life. And then there is one statement that Edwards penned in just an unbelievable book entitled The End for Which God Created the World. And I'm going to give you this sentence and you, you can tell your friends and family that you essentially understand the essence of this very large book because this is it crystallized. The summary of the book is this. The disposition, inclination, or affection of God chiefly consists in regard to himself. Infinitely above his regard to all other beings, in other words, his holiness consists in this. Now this morning as we continue our study our journey through the the chapter 17 of John the Gospel of John, we're going to see some amazing things. I want to warn you in advance this morning that this is going to be one of those heavy messages. This is going to be a message that is is filled with God-centered passion that I pray would affect you in many deep ways. The title of the message this morning is The Chief Concern, Living to the Glory of God. And in light of that title, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 17. As you turn to John chapter 17, would you stand with me as we read verses 4 to 10? Once again, this is Jesus' prayer to his Father. Verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. Let's pray together. Fathers, we continue to make our way slowly through the high priestly prayer. Uh, my prayer today would be that you would touch uh, your people by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would hear the words of your Son, that we would see the words of your Son, that we would savor the words of your Son, and that as we explore these weighty, weighty matters, that you would touch us in in powerful ways, so that we would leave uh, delighting in your glory, that we would have a passion this week to live for your glory, That every word we say, that every action that we engage in would be for one purpose. That is to glorify your great and mighty name. Father, we uh, recognize that your son has been submissive to you from all eternity and to all eternity. May we see the model that Jesus demonstrates. May we see his example. May we learn from his example. And when we leave today... May we stand together with Jesus and have this consuming passion, this all-consuming passion to glorify you, the great God of the universe. For it's in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Well, this portion of the prayer not only demonstrates the ongoing intimacy that exists between the Lord Jesus Christ and His Father, but it also helps us to understand three very important realities. I want to share those realities with you and once again pray that God would do mighty things here in our presence. First, I want you to see the successful mission. The Successful Mission, and there are two subheadings that I want to uh, share with you to help bolster this uh, very important claim that I'm entitling The Successful Mission. The first thing I want you to see about the successful mission of Jesus is that this is a mission that is crafted in eternity past. And you're going to need to put on your wide-angle lenses this morning as we, as we take a step back into eternity past and see, indeed, that this successful mission was crafted in eternity past. You see, God doesn't just make things up as He goes along. God has ordained all things that come to pass, including your very salvation, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now... As we learn this very important reality that the mission was, was crafted in eternity past, I want to introduce uh, 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 some terminology to you that may be new for you. This is terminology that is not directly lifted out of Scripture, and don't let that frighten you because there are many theological terms that we do not find in Scripture, but the concept is in Scripture. Probably the most prominent would be the doctrine of the Trinity. Nowhere throughout sacred scripture do we find the the word Trinity, yet we find the truth of the Trinity. And that would stand uh, is the case also for this word I want to introduce. It's the word, the covenant of redemption. You will not find that phrase, the covenant of redemption. You'll, you'll find the word covenant, you'll find the word redemption, but the notion of the covenant of redemption is theological language that that pastors and theologians have coined to help us to see that this successful mission of Jesus was crafted in eternity past. Let me give you a definition quickly of the covenant of redemption. It simply says that this is an agreement between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to secure the freedom of God's elect. Let me say it in slightly in a slightly different way. Basically, the covenant of redemption suggests this, that in eternity past, before anything was created, before people were created, before the cosmos was created, before the earth was created, you see, the Trinity came together and they crafted a plan and they had you in mind. And the Father and the Son in particular came together and and... They crafted this agreement, and there are several things that take place. The way theologians describe it is this. There are several provisions that the Son must engage in for you to be saved. And I hope you'll agree with me that these are are very exciting realities. Let me walk you through and show you how amazing this is. First of all, what must take place? The Son must be born of a virgin. The Son must be born of a virgin and assume a true human nature, yet be without sin. Let me boil it down very clearly for you, very plainly. The Father and the Son come together. The first provision that the Father has for the Son is this. Lord, To to, to Jesus, He says this, You must become a son. You must become a man. You will be fully man and fully God, and you will not have sin. Any sin. Hebrews 4 says it like this For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What do we call this? It's the doctrine of the Incarnation. And as we look forward to Christmas, I'm looking forward to Christmas. Is anyone else looking forward to Christmas? I always look forward to Christmas. In the month of December, we will break away one more time in the Gospel of John, and we're going to take the whole month of December and study incarnation. So here I give it to you in a very basic way that the Lord Jesus Christ, he would become the God-man. Without sin, we'll take the month of December and explore that amazing doctrine of incarnation. But there's a second provision I want you to see. And that is that the son must stand in place of sinners. That is to say, he must stand in your place. Theologians call this the doctrine of substitution. And you've heard me say many times from this pulpit that the doctrine of substitution is under attack in our age. All around the world, and I might say, especially in England, for whatever reason... And by the way, I am British. My heritage is British, so I say this without any uh, any kind of uh, uh, misgiving toward my English brothers and sisters. But for some reason in England, there are some theologians who are attacking the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. That is to say, Jesus bore the penalty, that's the penal... He is the substitute for all those whom God gave to him. He bore their sins on the cross. The doctrine of substitution. Galatians 3 says it like this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. There's a third provision. The son must take the punishment for all of God's elect. He must suffer. He must rise again. Additionally, the Son must transfer His righteousness to the account of everyone who believes. Some of you are familiar with the doctrine of imputation. And imputation in Christian theology is always double. And it works like this, that when Jesus died on the cross... He not only took, he not only took our sin upon himself, he bore the weight of all of my sin, but he also imputed his righteousness to your account. The doctrine of double imputation. Romans chapter 5 verse 19 says, "For as by the one man's disobedience, that is Adam, the many were made sinners, that is all of us." So by the one man's obedience, that is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Some of you are familiar with Dr. John Stott, who went to be with the Lord, another British pastor and theologian. He wrote the little book. uh, uh, Can someone help me? What was the little book? Basic Christianity. Thank you. I had a mind freeze for a minute. One of the more important books of the last hundred years. But John Stott also wrote a book entitled The Cross of Christ, which may be one of the best books ever written on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says this in that book. On the one hand, God declined to impute our sins to us or count them against us with the implication that he imputed them to Christ instead. Think about that. Christ took your sin. Christ took my sin. Stott continues, On the other hand, God has imputed Christ's righteousness to us. Number four, the sun must cool down the white-hot wrath of God. The sun must cool down the white-hot wrath of God. Theologians refer to this as the doctrine of propitiation. We see the word propitiation four times in the New Testament. One place it occurs is in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. And whenever you see that word propitiation, it's one of those big words. It's one of those words that you don't find young people using that word in the playground. In fact, you don't find many adults using that word ever, right? But the word propitiation is an absolutely vital word. Here's what you think when you hear the word. Two things. Propitiation suggests this. First of all, Jesus affirms the love of the Father. When he became the propitiation of our sins, he affirms the love of the Father, but he does something else. He absorbs the white-hot wrath of the Father. He tells the world that God loves us so much, but He also absorbs the white-hot wrath of God. There's a final provision I want you to see, and that is that the Son must gather for Himself. And this is what we see as a dominant theme in John chapter 17. The Son must gather for Himself a people and secure that people for all eternity. Next week, we'll explore, in John chapter 17, verses 11 and 12, the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. And if I asked, I think we did this a few weeks ago, if I asked, how many of you have ever struggled with assurance of salvation? No need to raise your hands again. But I think a majority of Christians struggle with this doctrine. And so when we look at the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, we will see how very important it is to see that the Lord Jesus Christ preserves your salvation to the end of the age. John six thirty nine says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You may hear this quote next week, but I want to give it to you now. If you struggle with assurance of salvation, if you have ever wondered, God, could I do something that would cause you to turn your back on me? Is there a word I could say? Is there an action I could engage in? Is there an activity that I could be involved in that would cause me to lose my salvation? Don Kistler says this, if a person could lose his salvation it could only be on the basis of God's dissatisfaction with the work of Christ. Did you hear those words? If a person could lose his salvation, it could only be on the basis of God's dissatisfaction with the finished work of Christ. And so when you meet someone who says, well, I can believe I I can lose my salvation, and I believe you could use your salvation, instead of arguing that case anymore, you can simply say, Then, my friend, if that's the case, God is not satisfied with the finished work of Christ. I want you to see that this mission is crafted in eternity past. But now I want to move from the wide angle lens to more of a narrow focus and have you see that this mission is actually carried out in real time and space. And in John chapter 17, Jesus highlights three ways That he carries that mission out. Look first with me at verse 4. He says this. I glorified you on earth. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The first way that Jesus carries out this successful mission. Is he accomplishes the work that the father sent him to do. In 1 John. The gospel, of, or rather, in the in First John, John the Apostle says this: The reason Jesus came was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? He came to destroy the works of the devil. And verse four tells us very plainly that he accomplished the work that the Father sent him to do. I want you to take a moment and look at that word "accomplished." With me, the word "accomplished" comes from the Greek word that means to finish. It means to complete, it means to perfect, it means to succeed, it means to attain a goal. And what's very interesting, I do know if you've noticed this, what's interesting is that Jesus speaks about the accomplishment of the cross, the success of the cross, before it actually happens in real time and space. In other words, in Jesus' mind, even before he went to the cross, he was successful. There was no chance that he could fail. In Jesus' mind, the mission that he came to accomplish, it already was an accomplished reality. The certainty of his mission had certainly come to pass. Now, would you turn over with me one page to John chapter 19? And we will be there in several weeks, but for now, look with me at John chapter 19, verse 30. It might be several weeks, it might be several months. In verse 30, you will recognize these words as Jesus, right before he he dies on the cross. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It is finished. That is the same word in John chapter 17, verse 4. It's the same Greek word translated, accomplished, accomplished. And so Jesus accomplishes the work that God the Father sends him to do. Number two, look at verse 6. Jesus goes on. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So zero in with me at that word manifested. It's a word that means to reveal. It's a word that means to, to make clear. It's kind of like when, when, uh, when you go to a Seahawks game. I don't know anyone that can afford to go these days. But if you could go, and you sit up in the nosebleed section, right? And you are like, you look around at your friends and you say, I can't see anything. Did you bring some binoculars? And so you put your binoculars on and you say, ah, the players are revealed. You, you see them revealed. They become manifest. And so here Jesus says that he manifests the name of God. That is to say, he makes it clear to People on this earth, who God is, he reveals the name of the Father. He reveals the attributes of the Father, the character of the Father, the nature of the Father, the perfections of the Father. And then go back up to verse 4. We see something else that Jesus does as he carries out this mission in real time and space. In verse 4, he says to the Father, "...I glorified you on earth." Jesus not only accomplishes the work and accomplishes the mission that God gave him, he not only manifests the name of God and clearly reveals what God is like to the nations, but he actually glorifies God. And because Jesus accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do, he can say just that, that he glorified the Father. Now, there's some confusion these days about what it means to glorify someone. It's very basic. It means this. It means to praise or give honor. And so when Jesus accomplishes the work that God sends him to do, he honors God, he glorifies God, he praises his heavenly Father. And when Jesus obeyed God, you see, he glorifies God. And remember this, from all eternity, not just during the earthly ministry of Jesus... For those 33 odd years. But from eternity past. Jesus has glorified the father. Jesus has submitted to the father. Now some of you can remember. Oh roughly 15 years ago. Back in 2003. As we were nearing the. What we thought was the end of the war in Iraq. How many of you remember that scene. When President Bush was on that battleship. of you remember that. And what did he do that day. He stood on that ship and he declared major combat operations in Iraq have ended. You remember that now? That's what he told the crowd, and it was on CNN and Fox and every other news channel in the world. In the battle of Iraq, President Bush continues, the United States and our allies have prevailed. A banner behind the president said what? Mission accomplished. And then six years later, in 2009, at his final press conference, President Bush admitted, and I I must say by, uh, I'm going to move away from the sermon for a moment, one of the things I appreciate about President Bush, if he did something wrong, he said, I was wrong. And here is this is exactly what he does does in 2009. He says, he admits that it was a mistake to hang the banner behind his back that said mission accomplished why the president said it sent the wrong message we were trying to say something different but nevertheless it conveyed a different message said bush obviously some of my rhetoric has been a mistake close quote when it comes to the lord jesus christ even before he went to the cross he said mission accomplished Mission accomplished. Jesus Christ perfectly models how you and I should live before the heavenly father. What is it? Our passion should be identical to Jesus's passion. That is to glorify our heavenly father. First Corinthians 10 verse 31 says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And so I want to challenge you this morning. What, what is it in your life that you need to reevaluate? What needs to be recast in your life? What needs to be adjusted so that you can say, whatever I do, whether I eat or drink, I do it all to the glory of God. Now, this prayer helps us to understand the successful mission of Jesus. But there's a second truth I want you to see. I want you to see. The sovereignty of God in salvation. The sovereignty of God in salvation. And drop back down to verse 6 of John 17. Jesus says it like this. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. There's two things I want you to see. Very basic things this morning about the sovereignty of God in salvation. And I want you to brace yourself. You, some of you this morning are going to say that that is not what I've learned for most of my Christian life. But this is the express teaching of John chapter 17 and the whole scripture. When we learn about the sovereignty of God in salvation, we need to understand that Jesus had a limited focus. You see what I mean? A limited focus. How could you say that? Well, the scope of who Jesus manifests the name of God is, in fact, limited. Look at it once again. Verse 6. I have manifested your name, that is the name of God the Father, to whom? To the people whom you gave me out of the world. William Hendrickson, a very famous commentator, says it like this. Not to everyone was this name made known. Only to those who, is the eternal decree of election, had been given. Another commentator says, in listening to the Savior pray, these disciples learned that it was not God's purpose to save the world in mass. Now, let me stop right there. If it was God's purpose to save the world in mass, we would, by definition, be universalists. If it was God's purpose to save every boy and every girl and every man and every woman, no one would go to hell. That would mean we become universalists. And of course, we don't embrace that. It is not the teaching of Scripture. But this commentator says, but to take out of the world a people for his name. There is a humanity in its alienation from God, and from this estranged humanity, God has given some to Christ. I want to have you turn your attention just for a moment now to the 17th century. In the 17th century, there was a a heated controversy in the church, and it was most hot, and many of you will like this because of your heritage, it was the hottest in the Netherlands. I knew you'd like that. And what was happening in the Netherlands and and really throughout Western Europe, there's there's this battle between the Arminians and the Calvinists. And the Arminians came to the table and they said, we're going to write a series of propositions. We know them now as the five points of Arminianism. And so they spelled those points of Arminianism Arminianism out. And what happened in 1618 and 1619, a group of pastors and theologians got together and they said, we need to respond to the five points of Arminianism. Some of you have heard of the college called, where's Aaron? Dort College, right? You have friends that have gone to Dort. Well, that comes from this synod. 1618 and 1619, it's the Synod of Dort. And so these godly people got together to respond to these Arminians, namely the five points of Arminianism. Now, I want to read just one short section from the Synod of Dort, but I want to offer a warning. I say it's short, it's actually pretty long. How many of you have ever had a piece of, and go ahead and raise your hand, red velvet cake from Costco? Oh man, are you like me? Did anyone like red velvet cake? It's oh, Nico. Yeah, I'm with Reese's peanut butter cups. And okay, all right, I got you. We're buddies. You eat the red velvet cake, and after about four bites, you're just like, I can't do anymore. It's like eating a piece of pecan pie. It tastes so good, but after about three or four bites, you're like, oh, it's so rich, it's so dense. That's this statement from the Synod of Dort. It is so tasty and delicious, but it is filled with doctrinal reality. And so I warn you with that. Here's what it says. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world, out of the whole human race, which had fallen by its own fault, out of its original integrity into sin and perdition, He, that is the Father, has according to the sovereign good pleasure of His will, out of, a, out of mere grace, chosen in Christ to salvation, a definite number. Are you consuming that red velvet, velvet cake with me? You see how it's so rich and tasty? Christ has been granted a definite number of specific persons neither better nor more worthy than others. He is also from eternity appointed Christ to be the mediator and the head of all the elect and the foundation of salvation and thus decreed to give to Christ those who were to be saved and effectually to call and draw them into communion through his word and spirit. He decreed to give them true faith in him, to justify them, to sanctify them. And after having powerfully kept them in the fellowship of his son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and to the praise and the riches of his glorious grace. Would anyone like any more red velvet cake? It is just Packed full of doctrinal reality. But here's the main point I want you to see. That John 17 clearly teaches concerning the salvation of the elect. It is limited. Is Jesus is set on the group that has been given him by the father. That leads us to this next point. I want you to see a gracious gift that is given. For God, the father, not only chose some in eternity past, as we've seen in other studies, he gave a gift to his son in eternity past. And I want to take a minute and consider who that gift is, because we have many people here this morning at Christ Fellowship. You were given to Jesus by God, the father in eternity past. What do we know about that group of people? First, the Bible says they are a sinful people for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says they are a worldly people. They are a part of the, the worldly system that opposes the word of God and the ways of God. Some of you might be so much of a veteran in the Christian faith that you forget that, what, what that was like. But the second before you were a Christian, you were a, a person of the world. You love the world. You love the flesh. You were a follower of the devil, right? And then something happened. Your heart was softened. You were quickened, and you became a child of God. Moreover, these people were a needy people. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, the writers of that document say this, Man by his fall into sin hath wholly lost all ability of will, to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And then finally, I want you to see that we are a possessed people. That is not what it sounds like, it actually means that God possesses us. God, the father owns us. We belong to him. And what does he do? He graciously gives the gift of the elect to the son, to the son. First Peter two nine says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now, as I was studying this passage, I asked myself and I was anticipating some of what many would think in the congregation. Why? Why the emphasis? Why the emphasis on the sovereignty of God in salvation? Well, there are many ways that we can apply this. First of which is that it demonstrates the God-centered resolve of salvation. There is a God-centered resolve as we consider the salvation that we have received from the hands of our merciful God. Number two, it provides hope for sinners who only deserve wrath and judgment. The word of God says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I want you to take just a minute and think about that. Once the Bible says you were not a people. Once you didn't have mercy, but now you are a people and now you have received mercy. And I, as I look across the sanctuary and as I, as I gaze into your eyes, I'm asking, what are we thinking about this together? Can you believe that? That once you were a child of wrath, now you're a child of God. That once you were angry with God, now you delight in God. Once you were under the wrath of God, now you will never face the wrath of God. You will be with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity on the new earth. There's a third point of application. That is that it reminds us that God is, in fact, sovereign in salvation. You remember Jonah chapter 2 verse 9? Salvation belongs to the Lord. Number four, it reminds us of the white hot affection that God had for us even while we were enemies. Even while we were enemies, God loved us. Number five, it assures us that all those whom God chose in eternity past will be saved. Number six, it guarantees that God will preserve his elect, and we'll look at this in greater detail next week, and that he will guard their salvation until the end of the age. And here's where it gets very, very practical. Number seven, is when we look at the sovereignty of God and salvation, it beckons us to a particular mission. 1 Peter two nine once again says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, for this purpose, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so, my friends, it works like this. If you're a housewife... God has called you to proclaim His excellencies to a lost world. If you're a school teacher, God calls you to proclaim His excellencies to a lost world. If you're a janitor, if you're a truck driver, if you're an office employee, if you work on the grounds at a school, if you are a pharmacist, if you're a physician, if you're a lawyer, if you're a banker, it doesn't matter what you do, God has called us to proclaim His excellencies to a lost world. I want to challenge you with something this morning. Instead of recoiling or responding negatively to the sovereignty of God in salvation, might I encourage you to rejoice? Instead of rejecting the great truth of the sovereignty of God of salvation, might I encourage you to rejoice and say, "Were it not for predestining grace, I would go to I'd go to hell. There's a third thing I want you to see. We've seen the successful mission. We've seen the sovereignty of God and salvation. Finally, I want you to see the status of the elect. And there are three very important responses that emerge here in this section of the high priestly prayer. The first happens, the first occurs in verse 6. If you look at the end of verse 6, Jesus said, Yours they were, that is the elect, the given, and you gave them to me. Notice what he says now. And they have kept your word. That is to say, the first response of the elect, beginning with the 11 disciples now, is that they obeyed God. That word kept comes from a Greek word that means to to observe or to obey. And one commentator says it like this. Keeping, honoring, obeying the word of God is the most acceptable action before God that believers can render. It is a practical evidence of our love before God and our relationship to him. You see, we don't love God and obey God in order to be saved. That's called works-based salvation. Rather, when we become Christians because God has declared us righteous in his sight, Out of gratitude in our hearts and because of the work that he's done in our hearts, we obey. It's a supernatural thing that happens. We obey. We keep the word of God, as verse 6 says. And then drop down to verse 7. We see a second response of the elect. In verse 7, Jesus says, Now that they, that is the given, the elect, Now that they know that everything you have given me is from you. And so here we see that the elect acknowledge God. They know that everything the Son has received, including them, is from God the Father. There's a third response that we see in verse 8. Jesus says to the Father, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Notice, they have believed that you sent me. So we see that God's people obey God, they acknowledge God, and they believed God. They not only acknowledge that God the Father sent the Son, but they received His words and they believed in Him. And I ask myself, why is the response of the elect so very, very important? Well, three things surface here. First, it reveals our love for God. When we respond in like manner to our Savior, it reveals our love for God. Additionally, it contributes to our joy. And finally, it comforts in time of trial and tribulation. This morning, by way of overview, we have seen three very important lessons. We have seen the successful mission. We've seen the sovereignty of God and salvation. We've seen the status of the elect. And then drop down with me to close at verse 10. In Jesus' prayer, he says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. One writer says that Jesus was asking to be glorified alongside the Father by means of or with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. In other words, Jesus was praying, brace yourself, Jesus was praying to enter into that pristine state of co-equal glory with the Father, a position that he possessed from all eternity as God's Son. And he would enter into that glory in a totally new way as the God-man. The crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it is this glorified God-man that we shall see in heaven and worship in heaven and commune with in heaven for all eternity. See, Jesus Christ is our example. He is our example of what it means to be a God-centered person. He always has been and always will be for all eternity totally fixated on the glory of God. And we can see now as we look back that the mission of Jesus, the mission of Jesus was always centered on the glory of God. The sovereignty of God is centered on the glory of God. The status of the elect is to glorify God. And so my question in closing is this. What are you focused on these days? What are you fixated on these days? And if you struggle in answering that question, ask this. What have you been preoccupied with over the last 40 minutes instead of the word of God? It could be something as simple as the roast that will be done in 15 minutes. All the way to that new dream home that you plan to purchase in Tahiti. It it runs the gamut from the roast To the dream home. What is it that we are fixated on these days? Is the glory of God our chief concern? Or does God's glory get edged to the side? Does God's glory get marginalized by cheap substitutes? The simple matter is this. The chief mark of a man of God, the chief mark of a woman of God is that he or she has an all consuming passion for god 's glory, this person makes it his or her aim to, to know God, to learn about God, to study about God, to long to be in the presence of God, to delight to worship God. I remember I used to play a trick on young people when I was a youth pastor. We get together on a Sunday evening and i 'd say, How many of you guys want to worship tonight?" That's a a horrible question, right? Because the answer should be, yes, we're ready. But every once in a while, students will say, nah, we just want to go play volleyball. Whoa, Whoa, hold on. You don't want to worship? And could not worship mean going out to play volleyball? You see the trick? Is let's go play volleyball. Whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do all to the glory of God. I want to ask Christ Fellowship a question. How many of you are ready to worship today? You see, there's never a time when we should say, no, I'd rather do... Because whether we're at the job, whether we're on the basketball court, or the golf course, or in the mall, or in a restaurant, or seated alone reading a, a wonderful book, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Oh, that we would make it our aim to follow the example of Jesus and live to the glory of God. May the glory of God be our chief concern at Christ Fellowship. And can you imagine if it became our chief concern, what would happen in this community once again? Is if the glory of God was our consuming passion, people would begin to ask, what's going on at Christ Fellowship? What's going on at Christ Fellowship? And I can tell you this, as I talk to people in the community, it's a resounding theme when people find out that I serve as the pastor at Christ Fellowship People say, oh, I've heard that Christ Fellowship has struggled, not just over the last four years, but over the last several years. What would happen if that got turned? Where in the days ahead, people heard, oh, Lenny, Jan, you go to Christ Fellowship. Wow, we've heard about that church. We don't know what it is. But we know what it would be, is our consuming passion is to glorify Jesus. With our free time. With our finances, whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we do it all to the glory of God. We follow the example of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, may we be that kind of a people today. May we strive for the remainder of our lives to follow the example of Jesus, to to glorify our great God in heaven. God, I pray that you would uh, refine us, I pray that you would shave off the areas of uh, idolatry and sin that we all wrestle with. I pray that we would admit it, that we would confess it, that we would take it to the foot of the cross, that we would receive forgiveness even today. God, as we come out of obedience to the Lord's table now, if there is anything that is uh, a hindrance, not only with you, but with our fellow man, I pray that we would make that right. God, I pray that we would confess it and find forgiveness. Thank you now for the elements before us. Thank you for the bread that represents the body of Jesus. Thank you for the cup that represents his, his blood that was spilt on Calvary's cross. And we affirm as we affirm over and over again that apart from uh, the gospel, uh, we are thirsty, aimless people. And so thank you for satisfying us. Thank you for not only saving us from the power of sin. Thank you for saving us from the penalty of sin. And one day we look forward to the day when we will be saved from the very presence of sin. So we partake of these elements out of obedience to your son today. We remember him as he commanded us to do. We are satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. In Jesus name I pray. Amen.